I'll be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overwhelming joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then, by the will of God, also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Joyce. A man took his son to McDonald's. And they stood in front of the menu, and uh, this man said to his son, whatever you want, anything on the menu. The kid studied the menu for a while. He decided, uh, I'll have some fries. How about some fries? The dad said, anything else? Surely, surely you want a burger or a Coke or maybe a Sunday or, I mean, something, happy meal. What, what do you, nope, just fries, just fries. You want a large fry? No, 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 just, just some small fries. That's all, that's all I want. Okay, all right. And so the man put in his order along with the small fries and then they went to sit down and as they were eating, like a lot of people do, you know, you're sitting across the table with somebody from, with some fries, and you think, wow, those things look good. Those salty, goldeny goodness, you know, little sticks. I need one of those. And so the man reached across the table for his son's fries. He was just going to take one. He thought, I just need one of my son's fries. And as he reached across the table, to his dismay, his son closed his arms around his fries and said, what did he say? Uh-uh, these are my fries, right? How many of you have been across the table with your arms around your fries and you have said, these are my fries? right? We all have. And what happened here is an example of a son being given everything by his father, and yet he forgot who gave him what he had. This kid, just moments before, had been asked what he wanted. Anything on the menu, any quantity, you want fries, you get fries. You want two fries? Fine. You want three fries, get a 12-pack of fries. I asked you to do anything you want, whatever you wanted. And his father could have 
buried him in fries if he wanted that, but the son just said, nope, I'll just take one small bag of fries. And then when they sat down at the table and the giver of those fries asked for just one, the response was, "Uh uh-uh, these are my fries. And I wonder, I wonder how many of us kind of fit that, those shoes, right? That's where we walk. We all have been given a seat across from the great giver of everything that we have, and he's given us all the fries. All the fries are his. God has given you everything you have. Now, we need to stop right there because some of you might think, oh, wait a minute. He just said God is the giver of everything. I'm not sure that I quite believe that. I think that I have what I have because I have earned it myself. And I will admit, yes, you have worked hard. Absolutely. But let's just think about it a little bit. It's like um, Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar is walking out, and he's the king of Babylon. He's walking out on his veranda or whatever, and he's surveying the expanse of Babylon, and he says to himself, I have done this. I have built this city. And God comes to him and says, I don't think so. I'm going to show you who the real builder of kings and kingdoms is. And Nebuchadnezzar ends up living as a wild animal out in the field to learn this lesson. You and I don't have to do that. We don't have to end up like an animal to learn this lesson. We just have to think. I want you to think about the people around you who have contributed to giving you all that you have right now. Do you have a job? Are there not people who contributed to you getting your job? Your occupation, are there not people who contributed to you getting into your occupation, to you receiving the training that you have? And are there, let's go back a little further, are there not parents or guardians in your life? or mentors that steered you, that directed you in certain ways, that gave you bits of wisdom and insight that that helped you on your journey. And even before that, let's talk about who in the room had had a choice as to where they would be born. Anybody? I don't think so. And yet you and I were born in the most plentiful place on the planet, one of the wealthiest nations ever. Who's behind all of that? Is all of that by accident? Did you arrange any of that? No. God says, I'm the real reason for kings and kingdoms and wealth. Deuteronomy chapter 8 says it this way says, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get what? Wealth, wealth. God has given you everything you have. All the fries are his. And now he's across the table from you, enjoying time with you. And all he asks is just for a part of what he's given you in the first place. And it's not uncommon for us to surround our hands, around our treasures, and say, uh-uh, God, these are my 
fries and how quick we are to claim what isn't ours. And so what happens is God gives it all and we seem to claim it all. That's what happens. And why does that happen? What compels that kind of audacious kind of claim on our part that we are the reason for all that we have? And here's the truth today. Um, It's a little corny, okay? It's a little rhymey, you know, but it'll stick with you, okay? So I want you to read it with me together. Uh, It goes this way. Our treasure flows where our heart goes. Say it with me. Our treasure flows where our heart goes. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, the text that was just read to us, about a special offering that's being taken up for the Christians in Jerusalem. And as he writes... He points to the churches of Macedonia as examples of right giving. He's writing the Christians in Corinth, and he points to the Christians in Macedonia, and he says, look at them, because some, somehow they don't have their arms around their fries. Somehow they've been able to open their hands, and they have a generous spirit. And Paul points to them and says, I want you to give like that. And the question for us today is, how did those Macedonian Christians get there? How could they get to the place in their spiritual life where they were so generous and so open-handed? And I want to do this a little backwards and talk a little bit negatively about things that they didn't do. First, it wasn't, they, they gave not because of a command. It wasn't because of a command that they gave. Paul makes it clear that there was no command for them to give. Paul never said, I command you to give to this need. In fact, from what we can figure, he didn't even ask them to contribute to this offering. And yet they are. There's no command to give at all. And as a matter of fact, in a few words, Paul will say the same thing to the Corinthians. He will say, I can't command you. I don't command you. In other words, I can't demand that you do this. All that I can do is point to why giving should be a natural thing for you. And that's what the Macedonians have figured out. And that helps us right off the bat. This idea that there's no command. Paul said, I can't command it, tells us that giving, being generous, is not a salvation issue. Some of you need to hear that today. Giving is not a salvation issue. God is crazy about you no matter what. There's nothing that you can do to make God love you any more than he does right now, giving included. And I want you to listen to the words Paul uses as he describes the Macedonians' Christian paradigm. He says, I want, he says, he talks about the grace that has given to the churches, the abundance of joy, even in their extreme poverty. Next slide. They gave uh, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in this relief effort, or some of your translations say this service that they were glad to be a part of, and they were never given a heavy-handed burden to give by way of a command because there's no need for one. There's no need for a command in your life either. Let Let me explain this very simply. No one has to tell you what to spend your money on. You spend your money on what you love, don't you? No one has to command you to spend money on your kids. You do that automatically. I do that automatically. 
No one has to tell us to spend money on our spouse. We love our spouse, so we spend money. No one has to tell us to spend money on our house. We love our house, so we spend money there. Your hobby, nobody has to tell you. There's no command, spend your money on your baseball card collection. You just do because you love doing that. Our treasure flows where our heart goes. Say it with me. Our treasure flows where our heart goes. Second, it wasn't because of circumstances that they gave. We quickly learn why Paul doesn't ask the Macedonians to help with this offering. It's because they were, there's no other way to put it, they were broke. They had nothing. In in Paul's mind, they didn't even have anything to give, and so he didn't bother to ask them to give. The the phrase Paul uses to describe their situation is, they're in extreme poverty. That's in verse 2, and it means they were in at rock-bottom destitution kind of uh, position. And the word itself is a picture that describes a beggar who has absolutely nothing, and he's not even a good place to beg, and so he doesn't have any hope of getting anything either. And that's where the Macedonians were. And so their situation may have been caused partly because of their Christian faith. These are Gentile people who have come to Jesus. They were probably worshiping idols before that, and maybe they lost their jobs because of that. Maybe they were blackballed from work because they had refused to do anything else with idolatry because now they were worshiping Jesus. There are any number of things that could have been the case, but the 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 end result is they were broke. They had nothing. And even in these circumstances, they wanted to give. They wanted to be open-handed. And what we learn is that giving doesn't depend on our wealth. Giving doesn't depend on our wealth. Giving isn't isn't about the amount that you give. And that's that's kind of crazy talk. When it rolls off the tongue, that just doesn't make sense, right? Giving is not an economic issue. You say, of course it's an economic issue. There's math involved. But the Macedonians didn't, didn't factor in math. That's what we do. We say things like this, and I've said this. Well, when I actually have something to give, then I will give, right? I've said that. You've heard that. Maybe you've said that very sentence. The problem is it's just not true. It's just not true. Money doesn't change people. If you're not a giver today with little, then you won't be a giver to tomorrow, even with a million dollars thrown in your lap. Money doesn't change people. It just makes you more of what you already are. And the Macedonians had experienced the grace of God in their life, and they refused to, to let difficult circumstances tell them that they couldn't give. They refused to let those circumstances be an excuse for not giving. And so even with nothing, they gave. To the point where Paul says, wow, we we didn't even expect them to give. But then when they gave, I I can't believe what they gave. They gave more than we ever would have expected because it's amazing what kind of gifts. Once Once a person has understood the grace of God, what kind of gifts even people who are in a destitute situation can come up with. Why is that? Because, say it with me, our treasure flows where our heart goes. Yeah. Third, it wasn't because of coercion. 
Paul lets the Corinthians know that the Macedonians' giving wasn't outwardly motivated. Even though there's no command, sometimes there's a bigger unwritten command that we use when we talk about generosity and giving that seems to be an extra special weight on people, and I'm talking about guilt. Guilt. It seems that everybody in our world is competing for our dollars and our cents. Uh, If you remember back to Tuesday, if you can remember the back that long, Tuesday was uh, hashtag Giving Tuesday, right? How many of you got email after email after email after email from from organizations that are great organizations that you support and they wanted you to give. And sometimes those appeals are so slick and so polished that we kind of are arm twisted into giving. And Paul wants to make clear that the Macedonians were not in that situation. Paul isn't signing them up for a guilt trip. In fact, the exact opposite is the case. The Macedonians are putting a guilt trip on Paul to be able to give. In verse 4, he says, they begged us to be included in this giving. There was something inside them that said, we have to do this. And giving is only a great joy when it is done this way, without coercion, of their own accord, is the way Paul will write it. In his book, uh, Blue Like Jazz, Donald Miller talks about a Christmas Eve when his view of God was changed and how that affected his perspective on everything else. He writes this, "For, for my mother that year, I had purchased a really shabby Christmas gift. It was a book, the contents of which she would never be interested in. But I had a sum of money with which to buy presents, and I bought her a book, and the majority of the money, I have to say, I used to buy fishing equipment for myself. I drifted in and out of an anxious sleep the night before we were to open gifts, and this is when it occurred to me that the gift I had purchased for my mother was bought with a petty change left after I had pleased myself. I realized I set the happiness of my mother beyond my own material desires. And this was a different sort of guilt from anything I had previously experienced. It was a heavy guilt not the sort of guilt that I could do anything about. It was a haunting feeling, the sort of sensation you get when you wonder whether you're two people and whether the other of which does things you can't explain, bad and terrible things. And the guilt was so heavy that I fell out of bed onto my knees and begged, not the slot machine God, but a living, feeling God to stop the pain. I crawled out of my room into the hallway by my mother's door and I lay on my elbows and face for an hour or so, sometimes uh, going to sleep uh, before finally the burden lifted and I was able to return to my room. The next morning, we opened our gifts and I was pleased to receive what I did. But when my mother opened the silly book that I had gotten for her, I asked her for forgiveness saying how much I wished I had done more. She, of course, pretended to enjoy the gift, saying how she wanted to know more about the subject. I know you because I know me. And what I know about you is that you absolutely know right now who or what 
you should be giving to, and you know how much. Whether you're giving it or not, it's already inside you. You already know what to do, what to give, where to give it. And the Macedonian Christians gave because their heart inside them told them to give. There wasn't an offering appeal that was necessary. They gave because it was their idea to give. It was of their accord, not because somebody else had an idea that they should give, because our treasure flows where our heart goes. And that's what happened with them. Number four, they gave, but it was not out of courtesy. It's really easy to conclude initially that they gave out of courtesy or respect that they were being nice. Uh, The gift, after all, was for Christians in Jerusalem who were struggling. Maybe these Christians in Jerusalem are struggling because of their faith. Maybe their families turned against them. Maybe they lost their jobs. Maybe because they followed Christ, they lost their jobs. And this is the first church. Remember that? The church starts in Jerusalem. The church begins there. And without these believers in that place standing firm for Christ, even through trials, the gospel never gets beyond Jerusalem. And if that's the case, then churches like Corinth and churches like the churches in Macedonia never get established. And so the Corinthians and the Philippians and the Bereans and the Thessalonians owned their very salvation to to these Christians in Jerusalem. And so you can see why they would be eager to give back. And we might conclude, oh, that's the nice thing to do, right? It's the nice thing to do to show respect to those who got the gospel and brought it to us. And hey, respect is a great motivation to give. It's another way when we respect somebody or we respect an organization, it's another way of saying, I trust you, I trust this ministry, I trust this project, and giving, giving naturally follows trust and respect because you never give your car keys to somebody that you think is gonna steal your car, right? You give to people you trust. But courtesy here, trust isn't the main reason they gave. It's not courtesy, it's not coercion, it's not circumstances, it's not a command, it's none of those. And reality time here, I need to remind you of the time of season that we're in, all of those, courtesy, coercion, circumstances, commands, all of those are reasons that you will give a gift to somebody this Christmas. All of them are. Well, I just want to be nice to the mailman. He delivers my mail such, you know, so timely every day. That's courtesy, right? Well, that's just the way we do it in our family. We draw names because somebody who's lived a lot longer than us said that's what's going to happen. And the command is given from on high that you will buy a gift for so-and-so. Command, right? Anybody? A couple of you. Okay. Well, I have to buy a gift for my boss. Well, everybody else does. And so if I don't, I kind of, you know, coercion. Woohoo! Bitcoin finally went up again. I'm going to sell while it's high this time, and I'm going to have loads of money, and I'm going to get to give awesome gifts this year. Circumstance. Circumstance. Those are all reasons that we will give gifts this year. And yet none of those had much influence on this gift that the Macedonians gave to the Christians in Jerusalem. And Paul 
points to the one thing that made the Macedonians so generous. And I want you to know what it is. It's in verse 5. It says this, verse 5. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And that's why they gave. We could put one word in the place of that sentence to sum it all up. The word is surrender. The primary, the foundational reason that the Macedonians gave this gift was surrender. Because giving always follows the thing you've surrendered to. If you're in love with somebody, no one has to tell you to kiss them. Because you've already surrendered yourself. Our treasure flows where our heart goes. There was a missionary who was witnessing to a chief of a very primitive tribe. And this chief tried to impress the missionary with gifts of horses and blankets and jewelry. And the missionary said, no, 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 my my God doesn't want the chief's blankets or horses or jewelry. What my God wants is the chief himself. And this Indian chief who knew the truth that we're exploring today smiled back at this missionary and he said, you have a very wise God because when I give that God myself, he also gets blankets and horses and jewelry. When we are totally surrendered to a person, to an idea, to a project, what happens naturally? We give. We give. We give because we've already given ourselves. And after we give our whole being to something, then the physical giving is only a means to accomplish that goal that we've already given ourselves in the first place. We could say it this way, that giving is a byproduct of believing. And when I believe in God, when I believe in his son Jesus, when I believe in his cross, that when I believe that he has given me grace and he's given me the very life that I breathe, the breath that I breathe, and he's given me life after death, then giving naturally follows. There is a sense in which the only thing I can really give to God is myself. And that's the gift that has to come first in surrender. I have to give my heart. Those of us who give our money but not our hearts have made a lesser gift. We could rightly say if you give your money, but you don't give your heart, then you really haven't given at all. On September 3rd, 1939, German troops invaded Poland and a 15-year-old girl named uh, Gerda Wiseman and her family survived the Jewish ghetto until the June of 1942. And in June of 1942, that's when Gerda was torn from her mother. She was kicking and screaming. Her mother, Helena, was sent to a death camp. And Gerda herself would spend three years in a Nazi concentration camp, followed by a 350-mile death march that she somehow managed to survive. She's a teenager. By the time she was liberated by American troops, Gerda was a 68-pound skeleton. And in what must rank as one of the most improbable love stories ever, Gerda actually married the soldier who found her and liberated her, Lieutenant Kurt Klein. And there is a Holocaust memorial in Boston, Massachusetts, and there are six glass towers that stand in that memorial, representing the six extermination camps where six million Jews 
lost their lives. And five of those towers tell the stories of unconscionable cruelty and unimaginable suffering. But the sixth tower stands as a testimony to hope. And on the sixth tower is a short story written by Gerda Wiseman Klein. It's entitled One Raspberry, and it's a short story because it's only two sentences. It goes this way. Elsa, a childhood friend of mine, once found a raspberry in the camp and carried it in her pocket all day to present to me that night on a leaf. Imagine a world in which your entire possession is one raspberry and you gave it to your friend. One person who is writing about that story wrote this line. The true measure of a gift is what you gave up to give it. I love that. One raspberry isn't much unless it's all you have. And then it's not next to nothing. It's everything. And the same is true of $2 billion or two pennies or a box of fries. The true measure of a gift is what you gave up to give it. You know a gift is genuine by the sacrifice it takes to give it. And that's where Paul has been driving us this whole time. The last verse of our text points to the example of Christ himself. The depth of Jesus's love is seen by what he was willing to give. Look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you might, by his poverty, might become rich. Our treasure flows where our heart goes. Jesus gives the ultimate treasures of heaven up so that he could have a relationship with us. And he gave up his very life to give us this free gift of salvation. And how much are we really treasured by God when we realize that God has emptied his pockets of his greatest treasure and given that treasure to us, given his son for us? We are treasured enough to give ourselves to him. We are treasured enough to give everything we have, everything we are, enough to say, God, I know they're not my fries. Thank you for what you've given me. And do you see what Paul is saying here? One of the things, one of the messages, he doesn't command anyone to give because he can't. He simply points to the cross and he says, if you're having trouble with generosity because you're anxious about money or you're too worried about money, it's because you haven't really grasped the full generosity of Jesus Christ, who on the cross was rich but became poor so that by his becoming poor, we might become rich. Paul is not going to let us get away with saying, you know, I know Jesus died for me, but I'm just not going to give anything. He turns that on its head and he says, if you're not generous, if you don't give anything, then you don't know that Jesus died for you. Jesus is not really your savior. You're still not believing it because money is your security. And those who know he died for them see the real treasure that they have in him They know that everything else by comparison, the stuff that we run after all the time, the stuff that we think is valuable, suddenly becomes secondary. And people who understand the cross have no problem giving up what is eternally worthless, the fries here on this earth, 
unless they are given. To make this clear, I I just want to end with this. Suppose you knew you were dying, and I came to you and I said, hey, I'm a doctor. I have a special access to this particular kind of medicine, and it will help you. It will definitely cure you. You are incurable except for this medicine. You will die, and you will die soon if you don't have this. It's 100% effective. The only catch is it is unbelievably expensive. What you're going to have to do, you might have to sell your home. You might have to live with a friend or a family member to, to afford this medicine. You might have to get rid of your iPhone to afford this medicine. You might have to sell your car. You might have to liquidate your IRA. I don't know what your financial situation is. You might have to do all of that. You might have to impoverish yourself. So you probably just don't want this medicine. You would look at me and you would say, are you crazy? Are you kidding? What good is my iPhone if I'm dead? What good is my home if I'm dead? All of these things that used to be so important to me, that used to give me so much meaning, those things are suddenly non-essential if I do not have this cure. They are expendable. They mean nothing if I'm dead. And so the cure is what is important. And that is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, you who have believed in Jesus Christ, he is the cure, the only cure. He's precious. He's the only wealth that we have to have. And everything in life, everything else that used to define us, that we used to run after us, has now become eternally expendable. And that's why Paul says, do you know the grace of Jesus Christ? Do you know that no matter what you have in your bank account, you are truly spiritually poor? And do you know that real riches are only found in Jesus and what he can give you? And that changes your attitude towards everything else. We could say it this way. You know you're in love with somebody when you want to give them everything. You know you're in love with somebody when you want to give them everything. Nothing else matters. All the fries are expendable. Giving has to start with your heart. And will you surrender today your treasure to the God who surrendered his treasure for you? This is the way we're going to end our sermon. I want you to take these, uh, these little fry packets that everybody got. And the reason I do this is because uh, this is just something that's stuck with me over the years. I keep one of these on my shelf at all times. And it helps me to remember, you know what? God, all the fries are yours. They're all yours. You've given me everything I have. Why would I not? I love you so much. Why would I not share back some of those fries that you ask for? And so here's what I want you to do as the band comes and as we get ready, uh, we're just going to take a moment of silence and I want you to grab a pen from from the pew in front of you or your purse or somewhere or uh, maybe your pocket and I want you to write a prayer on this fry box. The prayer is this, God, all the fries are yours. May I never forget that. I love you so much that I want to give you whatever you ask. Would you just write that, and as you're writing that on the box uh, for fries, would you just pray that as a prayer as well?